Aloha, and welcome to Thumbing Through Yesterday, the podcast where we pull our favorite books down off the shelf, dust them off, and remind ourselves why we love them. My name's Tom Galley, and joining me today, we have Tony Pasculi. Happy to be here, as always. And today, we have a favorite of mine, of both of ours, I believe. Yeah. Uh, John Stakely book, Armor. So, so always the big question, why, why this book? Why is it your favorite? You know, when I, uh, when I picked this book, um, in my mind, uh, it was a favorite because, and I love to use this term, it was a rollicking good read, right? <laughs> it, was, it was just a, a fantastic good read. Um, I don't know how long it's been since I've picked it up, but oh my God, what a good book this is. It's a good book. Um, I had forgotten so much about it. I, I remember, you know, being enamored of the armored combat sequences. I remember being enamored of several of the characters. I remember being enamored of the second plot where they're trying to play back the... Um, the yeah. memories from the suit, but I had forgotten a whole lot about this book and I had completely forgotten about the writing. Um, mm. I just, you know, over and over as I was reading this thing, I would just stop and marvel at the, the paragraph or the sentence I had just read. I highlighted just a ton of those simply with the note, you know, beautiful. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, it, in my mind, it was a, a favorite book simply because it was a good fun adventure type read and there's just not enough books out there about people in powered armor bashing their way through bug-eyed aliens but uh you know in the reread now it, it has a new category of favorite because this is a mighty well-written book it's it's a very well-written book it's it's interesting because i i sort of automatically classify it as you do with sort of the armored suit novels you know it goes in there with uh oh starship troopers and and a, and a host of others and it and it's it's really not it's really not that book. I mean, and it's deceptive because it starts off like that. I mean, the first, yeah. I twenty five percent of the book is just an extended combat sequence of of this guy um, uh, Felix in his armor suit yep. and his and his horrible military career, and then there's a complete shift to these this completely different story that takes place on a planet far far away from. Uh, what's the name Banshee? Banshee. The... What, a, what a wonderful <laughs> name for a terrible place. Yeah. And there's this whole plot about some local thugs who are trying to take over a town where there's a science outpost and and they and they stumble on this armor uh, and they sort of take this story out of the armor by they figure out how to wire themselves up to it. And it's it's such a shift. It's such a complete shift. And it's yep. not anything you would expect from a from an armored combat story, but it's it's essential obviously to the theme, uh, to what the author's yeah, trying to do. It does become yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's you know, and that was you know, I had vaguely remembered that there was there was a shift in it. But you know, as I'm as I'm rereading it, and you're right, that that first sequence is a long sequence, but it's one drop. Yeah, right. It's the first drop onto Banshee, you know, and then he survives that. He comes back to the ship, and he is a mess. And they get him patched <laughs> up, and they tell him you don't have to go back down. And they say, nope, nope, you're going back down. And that ends with him crying in yeah. the drop bay next to his suit, getting ready to go down again. You know, and then we jump to this Jack Crow character. Um, and I'm like, wow, that, what, I thought there was so much more fighting in this book, yeah. right? But again, that comes later. We get to it. All right. So speaking of Jack Crow, he's an interesting character and the name and the attitude make me wonder if he's an inspiration for Captain Jack Sparrow. You know, I, I couldn't shake that thought myself <laughs> and I really wish that I didn't have that thought. Um, I don't like the Jack Crow. I mean, let me, I have mixed feelings about the Jack Crow character. Uh -huh. um, I try and think, who can I equate him to? And in, in, you know, current society, current 
news and whatnot. Nothing comes to mind. But if I think back just a little ways, like Bonnie and Clyde, I think mm-hmm. this is the same sort of thing. People that have notoriety, and yet for some reason, um, they also have public support. They're folk heroes for reasons yeah. unknown. Um, so I can buy him going into this. But we've got Jack Crow does some impossible things. Yeah. Um, you know, he's, uh, his breakout from prison, okay, he's he's really good at combat, and he's eating this alien food that makes him super strong. He manages to pull that off. Uh, one of the biggest things, and it's a nitpicky little thing, right? But um, when he discovers the suit of armor, mm-hmm. he's like, on a whim, he decides to take it back with him, so he scoops it up. It's 500 kilograms. <laughs> I went back through the book to find it. At first, they just told us, you know, you know, the scout suit is almost six times a man's mass, but he gives us a number. It's 500 <laughs> kilograms for the scout suit. That's 1,100 pounds. You don't scoop up yeah. 1,100 pounds. And later, when he gets put down on, um, on the planet, I don't even remember the name of the planet with the uh, project oh, on it. I don't it. either. But... Again, the, the shuttle that drops him off, he's got two minutes to get his stuff off because he makes a deal about, I wanted to make sure that it didn't take off with my foot, um, you know, one foot inside the door because it's happened to me before. Yeah. That includes 1,100 <laughs> pounds of armored suit that he has two minutes to get out of the shuttle. Yeah, I think there's a mention at one point of like what happens to a man, a soldier who's fighting when he loses uh, power to his suit. That's it. He's immobilized. Yeah. You can't move in an 1,100 pound suit of armor. You Felix just... actually finds himself in that position. Yeah. The suit's almost out of armor. He's mad. <laughs> Managed to get himself on his hands and knees, and he's trying to crawl, and he's yeah. he's just shredding the skin on his joints and yeah. wrenching his back, and um, he gets rescued ultimately. He would not have been able to rescue himself, but yeah, yeah. So that uh, for Jack, would, and they make a big point of you know Jack's not a big guy, right? He's just a human. They use that phrase a couple of times, and when he comes up against the pirate captain Borglin, Borglin, yeah, um, you know he finds himself hopelessly outmatched you know yeah. he's he's hung by the neck by this guy with one arm you yeah, know yeah pulls a vader on him yeah exactly <laughs> um you know so i mean other than him being incredibly effective at person-to-person combat um and having he's supposed to have a silver silver tongue he doesn't really yes. demonstrate it to my satisfaction um and having some public notoriety he should not be able to pull off the things he pulls <laughs> off in this book yeah, he's well. He's interesting. I mean, he's a he's sort of an archetype rogue character. He's, yeah. He's the you know he's the Han Solo. He's the Jack Sparrow. He's you know, he's a criminal, but he's a good guy, and he's got a little bit more emotional weight to him, I think, than Jack Sparrow does. Jack Sparrow is a cartoon, I think. Yeah. As as Depp plays him, but uh, but he's someone who who genuinely feels remorse about his choices. I mean, that comes into play significantly at the it, end of the book. It does indeed. He he sets up. Um, he penetrates the defenses of this uh, uh, observatory, this fortress, scientific fortress, and then he feels so bad about it that he sticks around to defend his friend, um, which is just yeah. bad planning all around. Well, you know, he, he got himself caught in this situation. <laughs> um, we, we don't know how he ended up in the prison, but that's where it starts, right? The, yeah. the price of him escaping the prison was he now has to do this job for Borglin. Yeah. Um, now, I suppose at any point he could have come clean and they could have sealed the fortress up and... Yeah. But who knows? He could have betrayed Borglin instead of his what becomes a very close friend of his, the um, the scientist uh, Holly Hollis. Holly, yeah, yeah, yep. Lewis, I never, you know, the first time I read this, I never saw Lewis coming. Right, I, I never put together the fact that Lewis had anything to do 
you know, with this, he, he was just some sort of comic foil out there that, <laughs> uh, that showed up from time to time to be drunk and tell some jokes. I had no clue who he was or where that was going. Lou, I can't remember the first time I read this book. It's been a long time since the first time. Uh, but this time, and it had been long enough between reads that I couldn't remember. But all the way through this time, I'm like, Lewis has to be Felix. He has to. Yeah. I mean, Felix has to be one of these characters at some point. Uh, yeah, and, well, I, you know, I distinctly remembered that Felix comes back and we lose yeah. him at the end of the book. Yeah. Right. But, Literally lose. He doesn't die. He disappears. We lose him. Yeah. But Lewis is so, so intent on living without restrictions and consequences. Mm-hmm. He's just, I mean, that, that speaks to some sort of trauma in his past. He's not, no one gets born that carefree and stays that way and drinks syntho all day. I mean, that's, that's a man fleeing from something. Yep. Um, and, and then the line that really tips it for me, I think is about halfway through the book is when Lewis sees the armor for the first time and says, that's war shit. Yeah. He, he completely freaks out and stomps yeah. out of the room. Yeah. A little bit earlier than that, actually, with um, with when Jack meets Lewis, it's outside of the bar in the little shanty mm-hmm. town, yeah. um, and s- there's a monster drunk in there who's gotten just <laughs> who's taken an exceptional dislike to uh, to Lewis and is trying his best to pound the crap out of him, and Lewis is just dancing away from him over and over and over again. Yeah. Know? So at, at that moment, you get some hint that there's more to Lewis than meets the eye. He's got some skills. Yeah. yeah. He's also he's he's a fun character. His dialogue is just delightful. It's he's so quirky and almost out of place in this book. It's weird. He's his his goofy uh, attempts at fishing and talking about <laughs> fishes and yeah. Yep, he's yeah. obsessed with fish. <laughs> but yeah, he's he's almost a cartoon. Yeah. But and you're right. It it seems out of place. Yeah. Um, but you're right. This is somebody hiding from. Unbelievable amounts of trauma. So much trauma, in fact, that three other people combined are, are <laughs> devastated by reliving that same trauma. You yeah. Know? So much so much trauma and negative experience that is routinely denied. There's sort of a running theme of uh, Felix's uh, military career. As people mm-hmm. keep saying, oh, well, according to his records, he's dropped, you know, 12 times. That can't be. Uh, and so they just assume it's a mistake. Oh, he's had four major medicals. That's impossible. He would be dead. Uh, we'll just change it. We'll just change the number of his record to something more believable. Yep. Yeah. At some point, there's a medic that believes him, and the medic actually goes nuts. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I didn't know. I didn't believe him. They haul the medic away screaming to the psych ward. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so one of the interesting things about this, it amuses me, they refer to the, the creatures they're fighting as ants. Mm-hmm. And they're basically humanoid, except for they have an extra pair of arms. Well, in the sense that they stand on two legs. No, they're they, bipedal. Yeah. Um, yeah they but they, have, they have three body segments, which, yeah. you know. He, he actually describes them at great length. And he goes on to say, you know, even though they don't have antenna, even yeah. though they walk on two legs, you look at them and you think, ant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that was, a, that was a thing in uh, Starship Troopers also. The, uh, the foe were called the bugs. Yep. And in the movie, they became literal bugs. But in the book, in the novel, they're just people that they called bugs. It was a, it was a dehumanizing tactic to just call them bugs. I'm yeah. going to have to go back and reread. The, the farther we get into this podcast and the other things that we talk <laughs> about related to Starship Troopers, the less I'm convinced I remember about Starship Troopers. Uh, the movie may have displaced it in your mind. It probably, <laughs> probably did, you know, because the, the book I've probably read, you know, two or three times. The movie, I don't know how many times I've seen, but more than... The I've movie has the only the faintest connection to the book. <laughs> it's the name, right? Uh, what, okay, amusing story. There's a reason for that. Um, the guy, the screenwriter, was writing it, 
and he was writing a generic bug hunt movie mm-hmm. um, in the vein of Starship Troopers. That was his goal. That was his stated goal to write, you know, sort of something like Starship Troopers, uh, probably inspired by aliens, actually. Uh, we refer specifically to another bug hunt. And uh, and then on a whim, he said, well, I wonder if the rights to Starship Troopers are available. And this was like halfway through the process. Uh, and he got, he got the rights to Starship Troopers and made it Starship Trooper movie instead. So, hmm. yeah. Well, that makes me feel a little bit better about what that movie <laughs> isn't. Yeah. Because yeah, it's certainly not Heinlein. Yeah. So Stakely is an interesting guy. I don't know much about Stakely um, personally, but uh, but he only wrote two books. Yeah. And I don't, well, again, it's been a long time since I've read either of them. And what I'm wondering is if I pick up vampires, is it going to be as well written as this is? Um, and it's heartbreaking to me that he only wrote two books. This is somebody that should have written more. Yeah. Um, and I think he actually sets that up. Um, I remember making a note in here. It's going to take me a moment to find. Uh, oh, no, I'll remember it. Because it was one of the drunken conversations about the idea that maybe mankind had developed, had evolved independently in more than one location of the galaxy. And sooner mm-hmm. or later, these two different mankinds were going to overlap and collide. Yeah. And I thought to myself as I was reading that, he's setting something up here. Um, we'll never know. According to Wikipedia, he was working on a sequel. Uh, and then sort of sadly, it was called Armor 2 which speaks to it not being that, but being something else related to the armor. I mean, the armor, as much as there's a lot of interesting science fiction going on here, the armor is the central metaphor of the book. Um, and so whatever he was planning for the sequel, it sounds like it had to do again with that same idea of, of uh, uh, how does he say it in the end? You know, I mean, you can put on a suit of armor, but you can't escape from yourself. And if you put on a suit of armor, you're still in there with you. Mm-hmm. All your problems are in your armor with you. Um, so presumably he's going to keep going in that direction and not sort of open it up like you were hoping for. Well, it could go so, any number of ways. I mean, this, yeah. this idea of, you know, broken people hiding from trauma. I mean, there, yeah. there's not a lead character in the book that isn't the case with this. Oh, yeah. Right? Because Felix, when we're introduced to Felix before he ever gets in the armor the first time, he drops all of these major hints about, you know, he had a past. That past, he's somehow nobility and or um, royalty. Yeah. Um, at some point, he was a leader of men, but now he's broken. Um, yeah. Lots of self-doubt, lots of self-loathing in there. And then, you know, we come across uh, Lewis, yeah. who, you know, we've already discussed that being the case with him. Um, several of the pirates, Borglin and the, the gang leader on the planet surface, um, starts with an M. Oh, is it Weiss? There's Weiss. Weiss, Weiss. Yeah. It does not start with an M. Um, <laughs> the but, w. <laughs> but both of them have chosen, you know, one as a life as a, um, a mutineer, yeah. um, you know, one life as a, as a deserter over being involved with this war anymore. Um, and they're completely at peace with the fact that what they're doing to these other human beings because it's a better life than, than what being in the war was. So it's like all of the characters, except Hollis. I mean, the only thing, you know, Hollis is too young and naive to be on the run from anything. Hollis and Leah are both kind of too good to be true from from Jack's perspective. He looks at them and just go, how can any two people be that well-adjusted and happy and completely right for each other? And they're just like with no no hangups and no concerns and just sort of drifting through life being excellent and awesome at what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And of course, you know, then they get dragged into this stuff and they quickly get traumatized like everybody else in the book. So. He seems to have that effect on people. The Jack Crow (laughs) character does. 
Well, Holly was going to get there eventually anyway. I mean, he's the classic, he's the classic mad scientist who, who fucks with things which should not be fucked with <laughs> and, and pays the price. So, you know. And we never actually, we never find out what it is he's doing out there. It's, it's something related to historical analysis. Yeah. And it's somehow he sold fleet on the idea that this might help them with the ant war. Yeah. Um, they're a little bit vague on why this research has to be placed on a planet at the remote edge of creation um, with no real support to speak of other than, you know, the occasional visit by a warship. But yeah. it has to be that way for the story to unfold. So you were saying uh, vampires. I haven't, I haven't read vampires in a long time either. And uh, for me, that book has been entirely displaced by the John Carpenter film, which I've seen a few times. Yeah, and the John Carpenter film is such a poor representation <laughs> of, of the story. Is it? See, I don't remember anymore. Um, yeah, well, there are, there are concepts that, that overlap. Um, but, you know, the... the and, and this is also a problem in, in a lot of the Batman movies, honestly. Um, you know... Uh, Bruce Wayne is a god of a man. He is a mm -hmm. big dude with an uh, Olympian physique. Uh, the same thing, the, the main characters, the vampire hunters and vampires were really big, really, you know, combat ready. And who do we cast? James Wood. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, they were terrified uh, of what they were doing. Um, oh, yeah, and James Woods is just kind of know, like yeah, all in a day's know, they're, work. They're all going in cocksure, and, okay, this is the Hollywood movie. Woohoo, we're going to kill some vampires. These other guys were like, there's two of them? <laughs> we really have to go in there when there's two of them? Dude, it's already 11 o'clock in, in the morning. The sun's only going to be up for six more hours. Let's yeah. not do that, you know. Um, and, and there was a lot of stuff, the, the whole thing with the... Um, church figure going evil. I don't think that was part of the book. Oh, good, because that's a terrible um, trope. Yeah. Uh, what I was wondering, I, I'm going to have to go back and read it again now. I'm wondering if it's going to be recognizable from his prose style that it's the same author. Or if I'm just, curious about that myself. Yeah. Um, and again, it, I'm going to find it, if it is, I'm going to find it heartbreaking because, again, this is somebody who should have written more. Yeah. Um, well, apparently he wrote four short stories, only four. That's crazy also. Oh. But yeah, and then I moved to Hollywood to try to become a screenwriter and hated it and worked on a couple things and didn't really amount to much. So, well, I mean, if he came out of the gate with, with something of this quality. I know, um, I know. Yep. It's yep. always surprising <laughs> to me how, you know, usually the way an author reaches prominence is is because they they keep publishing and publishing and publishing. And so they come to your attention again and again and again. And even if there's not one standout novel, eventually there's something that strikes a nerve with you and it's worth diving into the rest of their um, rest of their shelf and, and sort of, you know, like, yeah, okay. Stephen King. I mean, I don't know what my mm -hmm. Stephen, favorite Stephen King novel would be, but I've read a bunch of them. Uh, and this guy's read too. And yet this book, this book in particular, Armor, is really well known, surprisingly. For a, for a relatively obscure author, it's a surprisingly well-known book. It is. And this is something uh, I kind of... I would love to see it done as a film, knowing the technology that we have at our disposal, and I would hate to see them because I know they're going to just screw it up. They're going to take everything that I find endearing about this book and write it out. Yep. Um, and there's going to be a love story thrown in there somewhere. Yep. Um, not they that would. there weren't many love stories thrown in there, but... Uh, I guess Holly and, Holly and Leah is a love story. Yep. Karen and, you, and Jack is kind of a love-hate 
story. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, that was an interesting thing with the Jack Crow character, too. And, and there's a line in there, you know, when he's first touched down on the first made his way into the colony and mm-hmm. and first getting to meet the people and they have this little party and Karen is really throwing herself at him and he says, there's a certain stink when you know somebody wants to fuck your name. <laughs> you know, and she's just like, yeah. I, you know, and, and it just opens such a vivid picture in my mind with that. You know, yeah. this person throwing herself at him for no other reason than he's Jack Crow. Yeah. You know? But there's, again, a I just wanted to read one thing in here. I mean, yeah. there, there's so many things I highlighted again over <laughs> and over as I'm reading this book. I had to just stop and marvel at the the language he would use. So this is early in the book. They're describing the night before the first drop, and uh, Felix is off on himself, off by himself in the middle of the drop bay, uh, lying on a piece of I don't know construction equipment or something and smoking. And around him in the dark, there are other people, you know, getting together to to do things in the dark and sex and drink and whatnot. And as the thing, okay, so it picks up here. And before thoughts turned inward, each and all would notice the glow of the cigarette coal coming from the lone figure who lay on the center template strut in the middle of the vastness of Drop Bay One. They would wonder what the hell it was he was doing there. Felix, alone and unaware of their curiosity, wondered the very same thing. I mean, it's, it's just great. beautiful. I highlighted yeah. one sentence in this book. Uh, you did the same thing in the Vonnegut fear. book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he's talking about his fear. I mean, fear is sort of recurring. recurring. Uh, uh, it's his only emotion. It, it dominates his thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he says, fear at this point could no longer be thought of as an emotion. had more the consistency of gravity. Yeah. Oh, I love yeah. that. It's just this inescapable presence all around you, tugging you, pulling you down. Yeah. Yep. It's amazing. There's nothing else. And it, you know, I love the fact that he made a conscious decision to become the engine. Um, yeah. that you know, he as he's going into this, he and we never address what brought Felix into the war. What it was that actually drove him to to enlist and and decide to fight it. it there are a couple of vague hints again about whatever it is he's running from. But we never really get into it. Well, he's escaping his leadership role, right? As the guardian. Yeah, but certainly there are more effective ways to escape than to throw yourself One would as think. a grunt in the middle of a war. <laughs> but you know, he he sits down and he realizes, I don't belong here. I'm out of place here. This was a terrible, terrible mistake. The only way I'm going to survive it is to be not me. Yeah. Um, and he starts to cultivate the engine, which, you know, initially is an act of, of desperation and deliberation and later becomes simply the way he is. Yeah. Um, and I think pres- that's in part why Lewis becomes so exuberant um, yeah. is because he spent so long being nobody, you know, being a, just an extension of the armor that now he's trying, trying, trying yeah. to be a living thing again. That's interesting. I would think of Lewis as not... I would think of them as two aspects of the same thing. They're both a rejection of circumstances. And the engine is one that's devoted to uh, killing and survival. And Lewis is one that is dedicated. They're both escaping consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lewis is escaping consequences by by focusing in on fish and drinking. But he's still not a complete person. It's not a personality there. And it's also not Felix. It's it's someone else. It's a, it's a persona that he puts on. Yeah. So, Yeah. You think he's still out there? Felix? Yeah. Still The Archon? (laughs) 
Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I love the fact that there's a the richest planet in the the human space has got people that are still out there looking for him because yeah. they they believe he's still out there going. Yeah. Also love the moment, you know, towards the end of the book, uh, Borglin has brought his warship down to the ground to, by God, have the thing he wants to have until he sees somebody has stepped into that armored suit and powered it up. And he's like, leave. <laughs> we are leaving now. Leave. Leave faster. A spaceship, yeah. And an armored, an armored suit is a, is, a, is a worthy adversary for a spaceship. Yep. <laughs> um, one of the things we don't, well, one of the things we learn is that never, never get engaged in a ground war. So... The other thing we don't learn is why, what are they doing on Banshee? Is that something they talk about? I mean, why aren't they just like ignoring it? I mean, (laughs) everybody that has anything to do with the ant war at the, you know, boots on the ground level thinks it's an absurd thing for them to be doing. Yeah. Um, The brass are all, you know, brass. They're, they're, They're making the war happen. We get a passing reference to the fact that the bugs, despite being bugs, or the ants, despite, you know, being ants, are intelligent because they make ray guns and they make spaceships. Yeah. All right. So we know they have spaceships, so maybe they have done something that is, is you know, pissed us off. Um, but no, we don't ever get anything more than that. Everything else is just left to us to infer why we would possibly go to Banshee. Yeah, it's crazy because you'd think... Uh one, it's like, well, if they leave the planet, engage them in space, unless they're interfering with shipping lanes or something like that. We don't really talk about that. Or maybe just attack the planet directly. I mean, can we do something to the planet with some sort of planet buster? But yeah. they're going down and engaging in a ground war with creatures that are subterranean, who, re- who reproduce at an incredible rate. They're basically manufactured for combat uh, with a biological manufacturing process. And on a planet that's so hostile to human life that if you puncture your suit, you're dead in seconds. Uh, <laughs> there is so much about this that makes no sense that it's believable. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and the fact that nobody, at least nobody directly involved with it, has any idea why we're there is also, I think, completely believable. You know, and this, yeah. and this is one of the major themes of the book. You know, there is no, there can be no point to this unless yeah. it's a point that, you know, is not important to the people that are doing it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know if this is a, a case of retribution. I don't know if this is a case of we want resources. I don't know if this is a, simply a case of somebody, you know, far removed with a lot of power and an army that wasn't doing anything, just thought, you know what we should do? It's certainly, and they do make this point later in the book, it's certainly the people who are making decisions are very, very divorced from the, the reality uh, on the ground. Even when they're on the ground, even when they're on the ground, they create this yeah. new fort and they think, "Hey, we're just going to hang out in this fort and mow them down with our blazer cannons." And of course, that goes predictably very badly for everyone yeah. involved. Although Felix bought into it, um, <laughs> he knew better than to buy into it. Yeah, right. But I mean, he, so you know, one of the things that the images that sticks in my mind is him coming off a of patrol, stripping the suit off, jumping in the shower, coming out of the shower, sitting naked, dripping wet, smoking a cigarette on his uh, on his bunk. Smoking cigarettes is very important in this book. Yeah. Absolutely everybody smokes. Yeah. I hate that. Well. Yeah. Maybe they're synthetic cigarettes, like it's synthetic alcohol. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, that, that, that was a shocking moment the first time he takes his armor off. Uh, and it's not, you know, not to be treated for injuries, that he just comes back and, like, he feels safe enough in this fort that he can take this protective shell off for the first time. And he's trepidatious about it, but then he does yep. it. 
and he survives the experience. And so yeah. he does it again. He gets he, more comfortable with it. But of course, yeah. It's just, it's, you know, showering and smoking becomes a thing. You know, yeah. get out of that armor, shower and smoke. Um, and there, there's a cost to be paid for that because when it starts to go horribly wrong, he can't summon the engine. Yeah. Right? Suddenly it's Felix in the armor fighting for his life as everything goes horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. Uh, that was very reminiscent to me. I don't know if you've seen the film Leon, also called The Professional. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Where, where he sleeps sitting up in a chair because mm-hmm. you can't relax. And then he takes in, uh, uh, what is Portman, that? Portman, Portman, yeah. What is her character's name? Who knows? Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> but, but yeah, and suddenly he like he's sleeping in a bed and then he, you know, it works out badly for him. He relaxes. He lets his guard down and uh, he pays the price. Yeah. Yeah. It takes the entire New York City Police Department to, pay, <laughs> yeah. to extract that price, but... Yeah. Best one line reading in the history of film right there. Oh, which one? The one word. Bring everybody. Oh, what do you mean everybody? Everybody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything yeah. else? Anything else on armor? I don't John know. I mean, I, I could, I could, you know, just gush about how much I enjoyed this and how hey, good the writing this was. This is your favorite. Yeah. You keep gushing this, if you want. This, I like this book so much more than I remembered liking it. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's a reflection of the fact that maybe I'm a more seasoned reader at this part and I'm appreciating something that I never bothered to appreciate before. Um, or maybe it's just it's been so long that, you know, that taste had faded. Now it's making me wonder, what else has it been too long since I reread? <laughs> Everything. Every book, every book, every yep. book that's good deserves to be reread. Because it's a different experience the second time. It really is. Well, then, on that note, what are we going to reread next? Uh, next week, we are going to reread The Andromeda Strain, Andromeda Michael Crichton's breakout novel. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Two weeks, actually. Two weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we will see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks. <laughs>